Go Strohs, Melissa. Go Strohs. All right, we're going to be reading scripture out of uh, Genesis, uh, starting in 45, and we're going to jump through to 47. Yeah, so 45, 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood at him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to his people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh, now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, 
put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Father God, we praise you. Thank you for giving us your word, for these words. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Help us understand the teaching of your precepts. Lord, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better and fill us with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may live a life worthy of you and may please you in every way. Lord, we pray for depulsion. James wrote that the religion you accept as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So please compel us to action by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give the children living at Depelsion your favor and favor among men. Overwhelm them with your provision and help us realize practical ways we can help. We ask that you would encourage the adults who care for them daily. Give them all the things they need to care for them well, specifically strength, patience, and compassion. Now, to you who are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Parkmans, and thank you for doing the announcements. Appreciate it. Um, all right, we are uh, in the home stretch, and uh, we got two more sermons, including today, on Genesis, and then we're done. Uh, and so we have a, a lot to cover in these last couple of weeks, um, and as we do, uh, let me just remind us where we've been. We're going to unpack what we just read in five big parts, and then we're going to kind of have three big uh, takeaways for the day, okay? So here we go. Uh, where we've been, right? We have been all the way in Genesis 1 with the beginnings, 1 through 11. And then we talked about Abraham's life, and that's going to come back into focus today as we go through our sermon together. And then we talked about Jacob, right? This deceiver that God has put his hand on to be this person that will, will take the promises of God forward. And we see Jacob again re-entering in today into the story, even though we are focused on this last part of Joseph and his life. So uh, that's where we've been. Now, that's like the big picture where we've been in Genesis. But the last few weeks we've been, we've been discovering this God who tests us, right? Who draws us near, but he also tests us along the way. Last week, the big focus was on God's providence. Not just that God knows the story, not just that he reigns and rules over all things, but that he providentially cares for us and provides for us along the way. So that every circumstance then we can see as God's careful, fatherly provision for his children. And so now, as we've unpacked this, this long story, this long interchange between Joseph and his family, we continue now in that big, long interchange that has now lasted for years 
as his uh, as, as Jacob's son Simeon was jailed, then set free, they'd gone home to tell Joseph all about, uh, to go home to tell Jacob all that Joseph has said, and here we are in the text, what is going to happen next, and here is the reality, there's a lot to pick up on. As we pick up on it, I've tried to put these points before you so that you can see them. So let me just tell you what big picture stuff that we could have read, should have read, maybe you read as in uh, preparation for the day. But let me just give you some big picture uh, ideas on Genesis 45, basically 16 through the end of 47. Here's kind of what uh, we read uh, or could have read, right? In, in the first part, uh, Genesis 45, 16 through 28, you see the brothers report back to Jacob that Joseph is alive, and I don't know what your response would have been, but numb doesn't begin to cover it, right? He, he thinks his son has been dead for over 20 years, and all of a sudden they've come back and said, not only is he alive, he is he's the guy that spoke so harshly to us that we talked to you about. He's the guy. And so J Jacob, of course, is elated and says, you know, right, right here in verse 28, it is enough. You've told me enough about this. Joseph, my son, is alive, although I have not even been willing to send my own son Benjamin to Egypt. I'm ready to go and see my son face to face. I will go and I will see him before I die. So Jacob agrees to go. In the next part, what do we have? We have Jacob moves to Egypt with God's blessing. I'll unpack that a little bit more as we go, but that's ultimately what happens in verses 1 through 27 of chapter 46. The end of that chapter, Jacob and Joseph reunite, and Joseph instructs his brother on what to say and how to act in front of Pharaoh. Kind of interesting that he coaches his brothers on what to do in front of the ruler. Most people would say that, that Joseph right here is saying, hey, look, we want you to come to Egypt, but you cannot be a part of Egypt. It will corrupt our line. And instead, because they think that shepherds are an abomination, come in and tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds. Now, granted, they were shepherds. They did take care of livestock, but that was his way of protecting the line and getting them away from the Egyptians. And, of course, he knew everything about all the land of Egypt, that Goshen was the best part of the land of Egypt, and that, in fact, is where Pharaoh sends God's people. In the first part of, verse, of chapter 47, 1 through 12, we see blessing for and from Pharaoh. So Pharaoh blesses the royal family, that's Joseph and his brothers along with Jacob, and he blesses them with the best part of Egypt, that is the land of Goshen, and he gives them royal duties. Um, we miss this, but if you do some uh, historical work um, to, to look after the livestock of a pharaoh was a high honor in Egypt. And so before he even knows who they are, if they're trustworthy or not, he trusts Joseph and therefore gives that high duty to any shepherd that would come from Joseph's family. So God is blessing them. He's taking care of their flocks. He's taking care of the best part within the best part of the land. And then you see Jacob blessing Pharaoh, which is a subtle reminder that though there is just 70 people that have come from the land of Canaan into an entire nation, this small number truly is greater than all of Egypt because the greater always blesses the lesser. So Jacob comes in, he blesses Pharaoh, and then the last part of this passage, in the last part of 47, 13 through 31, we see Joseph is a master administrator. 
He is doing things as a government official that um, you would think, man, that's crazy. Like first, they sell, uh, he sells all the grain in Egypt to the people, and they run out of money. And it says years later when this, the famine got worse, uh, they go back to Joseph and they go, hey, look, you already took all of our money. Um, how about you take all of our livestock? And he goes, sounds like a good idea. Matter of fact, I got people here that just came from Canaan that can take care of that livestock. So they come, they bring all their money, they bring all their livestock, and eventually the Egyptians say, hey, look, we're out of everything. We'll sell our land, we'll eventually just sell ourselves to Pharaoh, and it says that they had become enslaved. The Egyptians themselves sold themselves into slavery as Joseph, the administrator, is in charge. And we think, man, that's rough. But let's look at the details. If you read it with us, you see that Joseph lets them stay on their land, gracious, and he charges them a tax of 20%. One-fifth will go to Pharaoh of everything that you grow on your land, and four-fifths will be yours. Back in the day, in the land of Egypt, a normal tax for seed, which, up, which uh, was upwards of 60% of whatever it was. So Joseph, though they now are enslaved, has administered in a way that is gracious to the people of Egypt. And, oh, by the way, as the famine rolls on and the people of Egypt enslave themselves, what's happening with Israel? They're free. They're in lush lands. The, the, the food is being provided for them. They have good jobs. And you see this balance of power starting as if to foreshadow the problem that will come in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel are flourishing while the world around them is dying in famine and enslaving themselves to government. You see Joseph as the, as the master administrator, not just over all of Egypt, but then Jacob enlists Joseph as the executor of his family's trust, right? Swearing by the covenant to not let Jacob stay in Egypt after his death. And all of this plays in the background to where we're headed today. And where are we headed today? Uh, hopefully, what you'll see in this is that finding hope the only place to find hope is in God's promises. And we're going to unpack that as we go, but we have to find hope in God's promises. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but there's a tension in the text that I want to make sure that you see. Did you see it? It's right there in the first part of 46. As we've unpacked now three chapters in like eight minutes or less. Um, there's a tension right there at the end of 45 and at the beginning of 46. And what is that tension? 1 through 4 of chapter 46. Read with me. Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. He knows that Joseph is alive, right? He, he wants to go to Egypt to see him, but does God approve of Jacob leaving the promised land? There's a tension being built in the text. And he goes to a familiar place about 25 miles away from where he was settled in. Most people think he was settled in for 40 years in the promised land after he had left Laban's home. Think about that. You're retired, you've put your work in, you're older. Dude is 130 years old. Anybody else? No? He's old, he's tired, he's worn out. He has, he's built the good life, so to speak. 
And now all of a sudden, he's gotten some news that the land that he bought in the country long ago is no longer going to be his land that God wants him to leave, right? Verse 2, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, yeah, yeah, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Awesome. You're with me then. For there I will make your, you into a great nation, and I will myself go with you into Egypt, and I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And there lies the tension. You see, there is an allure for Jacob to go find safety in Egypt. There is an allure there to go find grain for his, what will be 70 people. The big part that we skipped over, all the names, is not because they're not important, they are. We just don't have time. All the names in, in chapter 46, right? There are 70 people that move from Canaan into Egypt. And so there's an allure. There's a hope of safety. There's a hope of grain. There's a hope that a whole family will be reunited. But Jacob is not yet sure that is his place. You see, there are two types of people that are reading this text and in the world. And I think that we can see those people as savers or spenders. Yes? In your marriage, there's usually a saver and there's usually a spender. Very rarely there's both, like there's one of or two of the same one. Very rarely are you both savers. Very rarely are you both spenders. But in every marriage and in every part of this, and as we're reading this, there's savers, there's spenders, there's planners, and then there's the spontaneous. There's the stayer and there's the goer. There's the risk averse and the risk tolerant. If you sit down with a financial planner, they will first try and assess your risk. Are you risk averse or are you risk tolerant? And that tells you what kind of investments you might want to go into. Right here we can see both. So for the risk tolerant, here's the question. Do we want to do for the risk tolerant, those that will go, right? Those that are the spenders, those that are the spontaneous, that were like, all right, man, this is our chance. Let's get down to Egypt. Do we do and then ask God to bless us along the way, forgive us for any missteps, understand us for all the things that we're just going to go do anyways? Or do we ask and pause and wait for God's direction and follow whatever it is that he leads us to do no matter what? Friends, different and new and adventurous are powerful drugs against the provisions of God sometimes. And for the risk averse, for those that are like, nope, we're staying. God has provided for us here for 40 years. What is this little famine but a bump in the road? And for those, we ask and we never do. For the ones that are risk tolerant, they don't even ask. They just go and do. For the risk averse, those that sit and stay, they ask. And the answer always seems to be, no, you're good. So, for the risk averse, Jacob, of course, could have stayed in Canaan, believing God's promise of uh, previous promise of land. He could have assessed the risk as too much, put God on his fear. You know what that means, right? Like, oh, well, it's, it's not safe out there. And God promised us to stay here. So if God's on it, then we just kind of have to stay here. So we, we quote God's promise for the land of Canaan, and he dismissed his kids. He could have 
and instead comfort and safety and familiarity, friends, for the risk-tolerant person, for the goer, different, new, and adventure are powerful drugs. For those that never go, comfort and safety and familiarity are also powerful drugs to keep us from trusting in the provision of God. Sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes. Here's the bottom line as we get into the text, right? That no matter where you stand on the continuum of risk averse of the stayer or the goer, the spender or the saver, no matter where you are in that, our truest hope is not in the circumstance of smooth circumstances of staying or in finding some great new adventure. Your truest hope is found in God's promises. Your truest hope is found there. And I want to put this before you. There's all kinds of proverbs, there's all kinds of, of, of psalms about placing our hope, or better yet, misplacing our hope. A, a heart that has put their hope in the wrong thing is a very sad, disappointed heart. Because no matter how much that thing provides for you, safety or adventure Hearing him, not hearing him, certainty, comfort, adventure, risk. No matter how much that thing provides for you, it is yet a shallow fulfillment of what God wants to do for you. No greater sickness in a person's heart than misplaced hope is what the Proverbs will say, is what the Psalms will say. So friend, if our truest hope is found in, in hoping in the promises of God, then what are those promises of God laid out? the text. First, it is God's promise of presence. Surely you saw it right there in verse 3 of chapter 46. Go down, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you into Egypt. Now imagine yourself in Jacob's shoes. You hear that your son Joseph is alive. He's been missing for 20 plus years. There's hope for grain. There's, you, can, you, can, you can find a new way, right? But Jacob, when, Joseph, when, when Pharaoh asks about Jacob's life in chapter 47, Jacob recites this, and he says, my days have been few and evil. I don't know how you summarize your week, but I've never heard anybody say in response to, how are you? few and evil. I've never heard anybody say that. And, and Jacob is like the only guy, right? But my days, though I'm 130 years old, have been few and evil, few compared to his father and his grandfather, and evil because he's made a mess of his life. So if we just recite some things and remember Jacob's life a little bit, right? He stole his, his brother's birthright. He then deceived his father to get that birthright. He then had to flee to Laban, his uncle's house, where he was tricked into marrying not just the different woman, but four women. There was also the, the servants, right? He was enslaved there to work for those women for 14 years. He then went to go wrestle with God and was left with a limp, with an out of, uh, uh, out of uh, hip that was out of socket. Dinah, his daughter, was then defiled. I think we can all remember that. His sons uh, kill all of the males in Shechem, create widows and orphans, and then bring those widows and orphans to be a part of his family. And he says, man, you have brought much trouble on me. Everyone around us is going to hate us now. 
at the birth of his youngest son, Benjamin, his favorite wife, yes, that's a weird phrase, his favorite wife dies during childbirth of his favorite son, or at least his youngest son. His favorite son, Joseph, is then sold into slavery, and he thinks because his sons lied to him that he's been dead. All this time now, he's been deceived by his sons. His son Judah, remember him? His son Judah impregnated his daughter-in-law underneath this cult prostitution sting. You guys remember this, right? It's all in Genesis. It's all right here. This is a crazy story. It's why I wanted to go through it as a church, because it just reminds us we're not alone in the crazy. Reminds us we're not alone, that we make a mess of our lives, and they have too for a long, long time. And now in the midst of this famine, Simeon has been jailed, Benjamin has been troubled, and here we are. Few and evil indeed. Jacob has settled into the land of Canaan, just as God told him to do way back in Genesis 31. And now again, here we are faced with being one of two people when listening to the story. We're going to power through in Canaan. Or we go, you know what? God is not providing for me here any longer. We've got to go. So here is my question, because here's the deal. We live in a transient city. You know what I mean by transient, right? Uh, I've told this story before. I'll, I'll tell it in short again today, uh, commiserating with a pastor friend of mine in Austin. And he goes, man, we get two years with people. That's all we get with them. And I was like, interestingly enough, we also only get two years with people. He's like, well, we kind of compared notes as to why. But the reality is Houston is a place where people can get rich. That's what this place is. It is a place of provision, of jobs, of material goods. And then when they get those material goods, the promise of more material goods is somewhere else usually. And they get moved off, they get shipped off to California, to Colorado, to wherever for another job somewhere else. But this is the place where people get their start and either they go somewhere else or they move out to the suburbs for a little bit. And when they make their life in the suburbs, they then find somewhere else to go. It's very transient in Houston. As an example, raise your hand if you're a native Houstonian. That's like not a lot of us, maybe a third of us. We're in and out of this place. The natives, you know, Houstonians in the, in the house are like, yeah, man, we grew up here. This is our place because we have to make it our place. Everybody else is like, I guess this will do. <laughs> God provides here, so I guess this will work. This is going to have to do for now. Here's the deal. As a transient city, this is going to face us at one point or another. The decision to stay or go, just like Jacob. Are we going to stay in this promised land? Houston ain't the promised land. Are we going to stay in the promised land, or are we going to go to Egypt? And here's the deal. He could have done either, but how are you going to discern what God wants you to do? Jacob shows the way. Let us not be a people that just go ahead and then ask God to bless us, forgive us, or understand along the way, but instead let us be a people who ask and do. Here I am, Lord. Jacob, Jacob, yes, here I am. I'm your servant. I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. Do we have that posture as God's people? Even if it means leaving the promised land and heading into Egypt, where the promise is this. You're going to die there, Joe. You're not coming back. You're going to die there, Jacob, rather. You're not coming back. Joseph is going to close your eyes there. Eventually you return but you're never going to see your home again. 
when we follow him, when the assurances for us aren't smooth circumstances? Will we follow him when the assurances for us, the comfort for us, isn't, it's all going to work out in the end? Don't we say that to each other? When we, when we have trouble in our lives, it's going to be okay, honey. It's going to be all right, babe. It's all going to work out. God's got a promise for you. But what is the promise? Yes, he's working out all things. But the greater promise, friends, is that he is with you. His presence is the greatest promise. If you are a person in here that goes like, I wonder what you're up to, O Lord. What, how do I know what's next? How do I know if you're going to provide for me in this way? You're in a crossroads in life, and you're wondering, what's next, and how do I know if you're in it? You are not alone. Matter of fact, um, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, my man Moses, asked this question a lot. It'll be co coming up on the screen, but in Exodus 33, 13 through 16, he wants to know, as God leads them into the next phase, after the Exodus, he wants to know, like, Okay, well, how are we going to know, though, that you're going to be here and that you're going to provide for us? And this is what God says. Look at this interchange here in Exodus 33. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, oh, by the way, O oh Lord, that this nation is your people. Don't forget. And he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, Oh Lord, if your presence will not go with me, then I don't want to go. Don't bring us from this place. 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? For I and your people. How are you going to know? How is everyone going to know, both for yourself and for the people around you? How are we all going to know that God has found favor over you and in you? That you have more than your neighbor? No, no, no. He goes on. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Friends, the distinction that you have is that God has promised to be with you. His presence. Don't underestimate in this, right, as we go through this. That, that there's value in understanding God's community and understanding where to go and when. So friends, if you're here and you're going, you know what, Houston's never wanted to be my home. I'll, I'll be here for a couple of years, which by the way is hidden in a lot of our hearts. I'm going to be here for a couple of years. I'm going to make a little bit of my money. I'm going to make my way, my reputation in my job, and then I'm going to go and head out and do really what I want to go do. That's in us. Even in neighbor Houstonians, that's in us. I can't tell you how many times I tried to not come back to Houston. And in the Lord's providence, I am here. When you need God's assurance, what do you ask for? You ask God for a sign. You ask God to make himself available through circumstances. Do you ask God for a blessing? Friends, when God's presence is your hope, you can have the courage to walk in the direction he says to walk, yielding the results to him. We get to the point in our lives where you go, you know what, I'm going to make my money and I'm going to go somewhere else. My, my question is this, how much value are you putting on God's community in that decision? I cannot tell you how many people have walked away from Houston with no assurance, no direction, no, no even thought about what kind of church they're going to find with wherever they end up going. 
And when you follow up with those people years later, they're doing all right. Their family's okay. But spiritually, they're nowhere where they want to be. And it's usually because they did not value the community of God. Not necessarily here, there. If you notice, one of the promises of God is that he will multiply them greatly into a nation. It's not just that we would go individually and journey in life. There's a communal aspect of what God's going means. Friends, if you're here and you're thinking, you know what, I'm going to get out of here in a few years, please put at the top of the priority list whatever it is that God wants you to do, that you will be with God's people. God's people needs that kind of priority. We need the kind of priority for here. If you're only here for two years, great. Dig in. Make this your place. Pick up a chair. Do the things. Like get into people's lives. Let them get into your lives. Make the best of the opportunity that God has put before you for however long he has put before you. God's presence motivates us to do these things. What's the second blessing in all of this? God's promise of blessing. God's promise of presence, and now God's promise of blessing. See, God was working out an eternal plan to make a great nation and bless the whole earth through Jacob's inconvenience of going down to Egypt. If you remember the covenant to Abraham, which if we don't, I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm going to read a little bit here. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Remember this? Way back in the day. He was in Ur, which is like modern-day Iraq, Iran, and and when he was there, uh, God basically appeared to him and said, I want you to leave here. I want you to go to a place I'm not going to show you, and he says this in verse 2, and I will make you into a great nation. Well, that's the thing that God just said he was going to do. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we see all the families of the earth in the time of the famine being blessed through the family of Abraham. Remember also with me the, the warning which God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. Again, on the screen, 13 through 16. And the Lord said to Abraham, now know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It would have been tempting for Jacob to settle in, in Canaan forever, but that was not God's plan. There was a grand plan, an eternal plan, far beyond one person's lifespan, which was being worked out. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes um, I get caught up in the micro. Lord, what are you doing to me in this moment? Lord, I had a really bad Wednesday this week, and I wish you could just fix it and make it go away. This Friday is going to be really rough, and oh, would you just provide Whatever has gone on in the micro, we miss out on the macro. In this temporal place, we miss out on the eternal perspective. And this promise of blessing would include obvious hardships from the very beginning that he says, the sins of the Amorites is not yet complete. They're going to come out. They're going to go, though, be servants there for 400 years. God was working out a plan that Jacob could have said, you know what, I'll be a part of that plan. 
And he goes into the land of Egypt, maybe with this thought in his mind, but certainly God had a grand plan. I get caught up in my own life most days, and I forget God's eternal perspective. God's provision is making evident the promise of God's blessing of presence here, and he does it throughout this whole thing. And I don't have time to read through it all, but like, there's a relational restoration here between Jacob and Joseph, and it just shows God's heart to restore all things in eternity. There's blessings of provision in Goshen with Pharaoh, right? You see God providing in beautiful way. Israel flourishes in that place. It is a beautiful, again, a beautiful picture of God's provision for his people while the world burns. Friend, it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has provided for you. Let Goshen be a reminder of God's grace in your life, that he has provided while everything else is starving. He's provided all that you need in his son Jesus. Not only is there a promise of presence, but also a promise of blessing and provision, right? Beautiful pictures of provision here in Egypt. But now we find ourselves understanding that God has also made a promise of a home. Genesis 47, 28, he says this, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And I don't know about you, but I read this next part in verses 29 through 31, and I do so with, um, with the thought in my mind that there's been covenants in the past of Genesis. 29 through 31, and when the time drew near for Israel must die, he called his son Joseph, and he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. The, li- the language there is not thigh, okay? The language there is closer than you and I are comfortable with. And he's saying... Remember the covenant. Remember where your life came from. That's how important this next thing is. Okay? And what he's saying is like, this is of grave importance. You would live and die on whether or not you will follow up with what I'm going to ask you to vow here. What I'm going to ask you to swear here. And what is it that he wants him to swear? Don't let my, my bones and my body rot in Egypt. Take me back. Take me back to that cave where Abraham and Sarah are are buried. Take me back to where we buried Leah. Take me back and bury me in that cave. Why? I agree. It's almost time. Why does he want to go back? Because he has a promise hidden in his heart that he would rather die in Canaan than, than thrive on the prosperity of Egypt. He knows he's a sojourner. If you look in this passage, you notice that there are three times that Jacob talks about being a sojourner in 47. In chapter 47, he talks about in verse 4, right? He says this. uh, They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. This idea is that we're temporary here. We're not coming to live forever. This is a temporary place for us. He says it again twice more in verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of my years of my sojourning, everything in his life are temporary. Few and evil have been my days, years of life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Their entire life now is categorized as a temporary holding place. Reminded me of 1 Peter 2, which says this, that we too are sojourners in a foreign land. 
1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, and then 15 and 16 say this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, you hear it? Exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Here, here's the big temptation for all of us, to make this place our home. To try and look for all the comforts that are, that are hidden in our hearts, that, are, that our needs in our hearts are here. But they're not here. The things that we long for fulfillment were never meant to be here. We're sojourners. We're exiles. There's longings in our heart that this place will never fulfill. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that there's eternity hidden in our hearts. C.S. Lewis says that if we find our longings, our deepest longings, can never be satisfied in this world, then perhaps it is a sign that we are not made for this world, but made for another. And indeed, we are made for another world. Look what this world does to us. We're, we're exiles. We need to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, Peter says, among the Gentiles, among the world, honorable. Amongst the Egyptians, honorable. Amongst, amongst the Houstonians, honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. AKA, when Jesus comes back, let them be found as people who would want to honor God because of your behavior. That's what's on the line. Glorify God in the day of visitation. Then in verse 15, for this is the will of God. Anytime the scriptures say this is the will of God, my ears perk up and I go, ooh, you're gonna tell me God's will? This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Oh, that church, that's good for one thing on a Sunday. They just gather and worship and sing and talk in language that I don't really understand, but they don't really make a difference in the world. Oh, friends, but if by doing good, we would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So, friends, my last question as we end. Have you made this place your home? Does your house reflect, does your rhythms and your calendars and your wallet with your parenting, with your spouse and your vacations? Remember inviting all people to follow Jesus in all of life? Because it's everywhere. Have we made this place our home, trying to find the comforts that only this place will do to inoculate our souls against our true longing for heaven. How do we know if we've made this place our hold? We use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. We explain away the desires of our flesh. Oh, well, you know, everybody sins. God understands. He forgives. We explain away the desires of our flesh instead of abstaining from its passions because we realize they are waging war on your souls. This is no light thing, especially, and this is a recent revelation to me. It should be simple. I don't know why it wasn't, but like why it's new. Like when I say I don't feel like it, that's probably a desire of the flesh. You know, Jesus probably didn't feel like a lot of things, but he had you in mind. He had his father's will in mind. When we blend in with the Gentiles, a.k.a. the world, instead of keeping ourselves honorable, when we go to work, school, or places of play, do people look at how we live as honorable and worthy of imitation? 
When we enjoy the prosperity of Egypt over the presence of the Spirit, man, we've tried to make this place our home. How you live shows where your heart truly is. And either we will strive to make Egypt our final resting place, or we will sojourn through the land with all of its promise of prosperity, longing for home. Longing for that which God can only provide in the promised land of his son Jesus. Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, and I'll end with this. A lot of times we can get through a passage like this. We can go, okay, well, this doesn't really sound like a fun ride. Like, I like the adventure, but the promise of, the fulfillment of the promise is that God's going to be with us. I, I kind of would like a little bit more than that. I want to invite you to align yourselves with the saints of old. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this, of all these people in the Old Testament, especially of Isaac, of Jacob, of Abraham, of Joseph, of all these people they write about in the, in the, in the hall of faith. In Hebrews 11, it says this, all of these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God provided something better, can you sojourn in this world faithful to Jesus with no assurance that you will receive anything but his presence in this world? Let's pray. Oh, Father, may we be a people who do not lose heart. May we be a people who place our ultimate and final hope not in temporal pleasures, not in the prosperity of Egypt, so to speak, but may our hearts find its true resting place and joy in the God who promises to be with us. And the God who promises to provide through circumstance. And in the God who came down from heaven to dwell with his people, to feed his people the true manna from heaven in his son Jesus. That all we might need for life and godliness and all we have to do is feast on you. To remember the forgiveness that we have in your son. And may we be a people who believe in the better promise, that you have something better stored up for us. And that's something better over the provisions of this world, over smooth circumstances, over getting a rush, over staying home or going abroad, whatever it may be, wherever we find these little reliefs along the way. I pray that we would have our true hope set on eternity that we would believe the greatest promise you could ever make is to be with your people. For you were with us, you dwelled amongst us, you died for us, you rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and then sent your spirit to live in our hearts, encouraging us, counseling us along the way. Lord, this week, whatever temporal pleasures call out to us, I pray that we would lean on your spirit. I pray that whatever 
foolishness goes around us or accusations that go against us or whatever it is that we think we might lose by following you, I pray that we would put following you high above. I pray that we would see how you provide through all these things as we trust you, as we fail forward, as we fumble, and yet deepen our faith along the way. It's in Christ's name do I pray. Amen. Let's sing together.